On the road with the Utah Jazz, I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS number 3112, equal housing lender. I am now joined by someone who knows the origins, knows the stories behind this organization and jazz. Before they were the Utah Jazz, they were New Orleans Jazz. And this man was the general manager at the time for that team. His name is Barry Mendelson. I am very grateful that he is joining me right now because he knows the story. So, Barry, tell me about starting this organization, starting a franchise, bringing basketball to this place, and it starting in the Braniff Hotel. Yeah, they, you, you're in the luxurious Four Seasons in New Orleans, which didn't exist in my time, I can tell you. I was in the Braniff Place Hotel, which was very old even when I stayed there. The last time there was a basketball team in New Orleans that played in Loyola Fieldhouse, which does not exist anymore as a fieldhouse, <laughs> it sat 6,200 people. It had a floor that was raised four feet off the ground. So your basketball floor was four feet off the ground, which means if we were on the floor playing and you pushed me off the floor, guess where I'd wind up? <laughs> In a net. So, <laughs> uh, you know those VIP seats you sell? Anyway, uh, um, so we couldn't get into Loyola Fieldhouse, and there was a, there was a provision that uh, the NBA Players Association wouldn't play on any raised floors without some sort of protection. So we had to cast that aside at the moment. The university had other plans for Loyola at that moment. So there was an, an opera house, a true opera house downtown called Municipal Auditorium. Uh, you're about six, seven blocks away from it as we speak, uh, in from the water. And when I say it's a true opera house, it's 270 degrees. So that means there's a permanent stage on one end. So the basketball floor did not uh, did not encompass 360 degrees. The basketball floor encompassed 270 degrees, which means one end was a permanent stage, which we could drop a curve. That's where Marishnikov and Nuria performed. They performed on that stage. And so we could have, we could drop a curtain, but all the dressing rooms were behind that stage. So the entire floor was on the other end, the basketball floor was on the other end, but they had no uh, facilities for the basketball teams on that other end. So there were no dressing rooms whatsoever, zero, none. So we had about I think we could cobble together about 73, 7,400 seats. Maybe my memory's a little frayed. It is 50 years. So, um, but it was a true opera house. It was vertical, had private loge seating, and then had a balcony above that, and then orchestra seating. And we were able to put a basketball floor, a basketball court on the floor that butted up against that one end where there was a stage. We did not put any seats on that stage. We either had it in black or we dropped a curtain. So we were able to get to play there, start our career there, start our first season there. We had to create literally pipe and drape for men's dressing rooms. But 
where the pipe and drape was set up is where you where fans entered the facility. It's crazy. Think back on that, the technology world we live in. So they would literally walk into the back of the house, what was termed the back of the house. It would be the freight entrance normally. So in that freight entrance, as the people entered on the extreme sides were pipe and drape set up for the home team and the visiting team. And there were no showers in it. So it was just a changing area. And so if you wanted a shower, you had to go to the team's, dressing, team's hotel, visiting team. The home team, I guess they'd showered at home. But it, this, uh, this were the accommodations that we had. We had no choice. And that's where we started our career in municipal auditorium. The problem, municipal auditorium was the home of Mar every single Mardi Gras ball. And there are over 30 Mardi Gras balls. So everybody thinks there's a Fat Tuesday and that's the beginning and the end of Mardi Gras. It's not. You, you have balls going on for 21 days prior to Mardi Gras. So we were essentially kicked out of municipal auditorium during Mardi Gras. Everything takes second fiddle to Mardi Gras, believe me. So uh, we had to find an alternate home for the last half of the 74-75 season of that ascension. So we would, we were forced out in would be February of 75, forced out of municipal auditorium. We won our first game in municipal auditorium. Uh, we had good crowds. We had a lot of excitement because when you're in a minute, when you're in an opera house, it's very close. You're very close with each other, but it's very vertical. If you've ever seen pictures of La Scala in Milan, you would understand that. And so people would literally drape over the floor. If you were sitting in a loge box, which is circular around the court, you were looking right down in the middle of the floor. So if you're you if you were a vocal fan of the team. <laughs> You could say a lot of things that would get really hurt. But anyway, it, it was a lot of fun, as it turned out, but it was crazy. And um, so we started our life there, and then we had to move to Loyola Fieldhouse. And if you recall, I told you we couldn't play on that court unless we made some construction modifications. So we literally had to circle the court with a net. We had to encapsulate the court with a net, which someone once told me that the strongest net netting is Louisiana fishnet. So I hired an architect to make a design, and he came up with Louisiana fishnet, and we encapsulated the floor. So you essentially went back to the days when basketball began, where they played inside some netting. They did that. And so we were retro. I mean, really retro. <laughs> In every sense of the word. Every sense of the word, JP. So uh, I had to get permission from the NBA Players Association, whose president was Bob Lanier. Bob Lanier was a great player. I was a great fan because he was from Western New York, where I'm from. He went to St. Bonaventure. He had size 22 shoes. That was his shoe size. Bob Lanier should be in the Hall of Fame. He played with Milwaukee, played with Detroit. Great player. Big guy, real thick guy. Had a nice little hook shot from across the lane. Uh, tough to 
to move him out of the way. And, and anyway, um, so but he was player president of the Players Association. So one day he met me because he had to sign off on the netting so that we could play in municipal auditorium. So one afternoon, a, a taxi cab pulls out. First of all, I don't know how Bob Lanier gets in a taxi cab, but Bob Lanier got into a taxi cab, pulled up in front. Remember, he didn't play for us or play. He wasn't on an opposing team coming to town. So he pulled up in his taxi cab, got out of the taxi cab, walk, walked into the Loyola Fieldhouse. The netting was up. And so I introduced, it was just he and I, and I introduced myself, and he was very cordial. And he said, okay, I'm here to test an inning out. Well, if anybody's going to test an inning out and speak for it, it'll be Bob Lanier. So he literally ran from one side of the court to the other side of the court, jumped into the netting. And the netting propelled him back. And so he said, okay, now I got to do it to the other side of the court. Okay. So he did the same thing. He got ahead of steam and jumped into the netting and it propelled him back. And he, he looked at me. This must have been all of five minutes, maybe five minutes. He looked at me and said, everything's perfect. And he walked out of the gym. And so we were then granted permission to play in Loyola Fieldhouse for the balance of the 74-75 season. Well, the problem with Loyola Fieldhouse is that it leaked. And so we had a, and as you know, because you're under a weather alert in New Orleans, we had a terrific rain downpour, usually came in the afternoon around four o'clock. When I tell you it would drop a lot of rain, they had a lot. And so in this particular game, we were playing the Phoenix Suns. And so we had a rain downpour and the roof started to leak over the court. And so I dispatched the ball boys or our, our game management people dispatched the ball boys and they started to put towels on the floor, you know, but it was raining. <laughs> and so as people were coming to the venue, and in New Orleans, rain is not a big deal for people. You know, they they party in the rain and they roll up their pant legs. And then they come at Ferret Street, which is the street that parallels the venue, uh, was under three feet of water. So here that comes a, oh a sold-out crowd walking in with no shoes on to the venue. This is all a true story. It's not apocryphal. And so I I said, guys, we gotta play this game. We're sold out. Sold out meant about 6,500 people. <clears throat> but it was party time in New Orleans. Post Mardi Gras, people are all chest, um, so to speak. Oh, jeez. So anyway, I had to go to each individual player rep to get their permission to play the game. So the player rep for Phoenix, I think it was one of the Van Arsdale uh, twin brothers. Mm -hmm. One, uh, I don't know if it was Dick or Tom. So I asked him and he said, yeah, if you dry it off and you get the towels and you keep the towels down because the rain was subsiding then, yeah, we'll play the game. I said, great, thank you guys. So I went to the other locker room and we had a player rep named Mel Counts who was known as Goose affectionately. Mel was about 7-1 out of the University of Oregon, played on the Lakers on the team that lost to the Celtics in the seventh game when Wilt got injured. They said, Goose, we got to take a vote. We got to play this game. Phoenix has signed off. You can check. Goose looked at me and said, we're not playing this game. 
it's too dangerous. <laughs> I said, Goose, we've got to sell out. Everybody's happy. Your opposing team will play this game. No. The one thing I learned about Goose is that he was what we call a scrounge. Anything left in the locker room, he would pick up. We had a couple of players like him. <laughs> one was uh, Henry Bibby, and, and one was Mel Counts. Anyway, after each game, I had a case of beer, 24 beer cans, that we would dispense to the team. So they couldn't get, you know, there was, then we had 12 guys on the roster. Now you have like 50, I think, 12 guys on the roster. And so they all got a beer too, and they would sit there. So I went to Cat Goose and I said, listen, Mel, if you sign off of this, I'll give you the case of the, I'll give you the whole case of beer. And he said, done. <laughs> <laughs> so we played the game. The game was played and wow. Goose got his case of beer. Tell me about what was deemed by one columnist, Louisiana Purchase 2, acquiring Pistol Pete Maravich. Yeah, we, uh, it wasn't, it was a pretty simple decision because we knew we weren't going to be competitive. And if you're not competitive in the NBA, at least in that time, you weren't going to draw a lot of folks. And we needed the income from the uh, from the gate receipts as an important stream of revenue for our team. So we had to get people in there. And we had to get paying people in there. I'm not telling you what they paid, but they, we had to get paying people. We didn't have a stop up where you could buy 50 cent tickets today. So I'm not referring to that. So, um, so I'm just saying to you, JP, that uh, we made a decision. We needed to have an entertainment product, entertaining product on the floor. And the most entertaining uh, player to me up until that point in the history of basketball, well, there were a few others, but without question, was Pistol B. Maravich. And while he was not native to Louisiana, he was treated as a native son. Came out of LSU, averaged 44.2 points a game in only three years. Set all the records that still exist. No three-point line. First guy to warrant having a national television game for college. And was iconic. Was on Sports Illustrated seven times. Was iconic. Had the floppy hair, the floppy, the hair and the floppy socks and the floppy hair and everything. And um, so I, I remember I said, and he, there was some sort of disenchantment with him in Atlanta. Atlanta had a really good team when he got there. It's not that they had a bad team. When he was there, he was very effective. But a lot of the ballplayers who were there held his salary against him, or that was what I was led to believe. So I just called Richie Guerin one day. He was a general manager, an old Nick. And I kind of grew up knowing who Richie Guerin was, and he played for, I think he played for Iona College, and he's a irascible kind of guy, but a really good basketball guy. And I said, Richie, are you in the mood to trade Pistol Pete? And he said, Yeah, sure. Well, I'll consider it. My guys are belly aching, and he didn't go into detail, but I know it was a couple of guys, Lou Hudson and Joe Caldwell, really good players, really good players, and. So we gave him a lot of draft picks, but it was critical that we, we get Pistol Pete back home, so to speak. 
the draft picks, if I remember correctly, and I don't probably, I think there were four draft picks. And I may be wrong, but I don't think there was one single first round pick that turned out to be a game changer for the Atlanta Hawks. And so we were able to get Pistol Pete and bring him home. And the crowd, you know, history speaks for itself. He he performed great. He, he loved being home. Uh, his dad worked for us. His dad was the coach of LSU at one time. They were steeped now in New Orleans tradition. I mean, his brother was living in the French Quarter back from the Marines, still a dear friend of mine. So it was a really, really special time. And Bill, we knew we had to be entertaining. And we were really entertaining. What was the magic of watching Pete thinking of that 68-point night well, it was a 68-point uh, game without a three-point shot. So with a three-point shot, JP, it was a 79-point game. So, and he fouled out. Yep. And the great, there's a, I don't know if you can hear it on video, but there's a point where the ref calls the fifth, sixth foul on Pete. And he said, how can you call a sixth foul? You've never seen that move before. <laughs> and so, but, you know, we were up by a lot of points and he had scored a lot a lot of points, and um, I don't know why the referee would have followed him out. He, you know, he was he could have gone out and got maybe eighty points without the uh, three, but he did follow out, and we won easily against the Knicks that night. And there's a there's a little uh, again, it's hard to hear on video, but there's a point on a timeout where you're in the Nick um, huddle at it and. Was it Monroe? Earl Monroe turns to uh, Walt Fraser, who was always considered one of the premier defenders in the NBA. And you hear Monroe says, you can't guard that guy. You just can't guard that guy. <laughs> so it was true. But Pete was electric that night. The crowd was crazy. We were, <clears throat> we were playing really good ball. And uh, he went on to have the scoring title that year, I believe. And um, so, but there were men in the state, we had, the way that the uh, configuration was set, we had metal stands that came over on runners to form the basketball configuration. And you could pound your feet on those metal stands when you got excited. So needless to say, instead of throwing t-shirts into the audience or having strobe lights in the building like you guys do today, we had we had our crowd just banging their feet on the metal stands and the noise, the din of the noise in the dome is just, is seared into my memory. And so it was electric when, when Pete was playing basketball, just electric. So you would see things that you never, you truly never saw before. He was the ultimate savant in basketball. I've always said that it was easy for him to play, too easy for him to play the game. And even Julius Irving, who did play for Atlanta for a moment, said he was the greatest ba basketball athlete that he had ever seen until this day. So his ability to understand angles, ability to pass the ball, ability to do things with the ball, which was unconscionable, and was just electric, and everybody just loved watching him come. You know, I, I, I've told you how many times we were on that winning streak against the Lakers 
and we had a deluge of rain, and we had to bring Pete in on Interstate 10 in a Higgins boat, which is the boat at D-Day that let the people off the beach. That's the Higgins boat. And we brought Pete in on a Higgins boat. And so on Interstate 10, which you came in on last night. And so it was just a, a magical moment. I mean, it's so, I'm not putting anybody anything down, but it's so corporate and by the numbers today when you present a game in the NBA, then it was much more free free wheeling and free fall. You know, we didn't we didn't have a playbook. We didn't want a playbook. We wanted to do it in New Orleans. Do you know the reason why he would switch between seven and forty four? Sure. His numbers? Absolutely. And uh he would walk into my office when Pete grew up, he grew up in North Carolina, in Raleigh. He always wanted to go to West Virginia. Jerry West was his idol. Mm -hmm. And Jerry West wore 44, as one knows. And so Pete wore 7, 23, and 44. But when he wanted to wear 44, he would walk into my office before a game, because our offices were in the Dome, and he would say, I'm in my Jerry West state of mind. Can I wear 44 tonight? And he said, have at it. Enjoy yourself. If you're in your Jerry West state of mind, I can't wait for this. Because <laughs> I knew Jerry West and managed Jerry West and had the privilege of learning basketball for Jerry West. And when he said, I'm in my Jerry West state of mind, go to it, Pete. And so it's <laughs> exactly what happened. Let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz. franchise moves from New Orleans to Utah. The owner, Sam Battistone, wasn't in New Orleans at the time. You were his guy on the ground, so that had to contribute to it. But why didn't it work out? Why is it now the Utah Jazz? Well, I think, yeah, JP, I think you you hit it on the nose. We had an absentee owner, majority owner. We had an absentee majority owner who really was not comfortable coming to New Orleans. His state of life, his quality of life, the way he conducted his life, he he was a very devout Mormon. Uh, he wanted, he he loved the idea of being in the NBA. Uh, he, I, I don't know if he had moved to um, Las Vegas yet, but he lived in Santa Barbara. He was a great guy. I really enjoyed working for him. But he never wanted to come to New Orleans. I think it's a political will when you want to keep your team in a particular city. He didn't have the political will. The mayor of our town didn't have the political will. And the team was not doing, after Pete's injury and after the drive to the playoffs that year, 
Sam came to me and said, let's get the team. I want to get the team out of there. And we, I negotiated, I don't know the singular reason, but in the least agreement with the dome, the liquidated damage was not, not critical in terms of the amount. And again, during those times, it wasn't difficult to move a team. And so again, going back, there isn't a great history of basketball in New Orleans. And so finally, as we come through the 70s, we see the merger of the ABA and NBA. We see Dallas becomes San, San Antonio. We see San, Dallas get a new franchise. So we're seeing the evolution um, as a result of the merger. So it, there wasn't any politics standing in our way of moving. The mayor never once said, you're never going to do it. Remember something. The Superdome is not a city-owned facility, so the mayor can only do so much. He could have a bully pulpit, but he couldn't legislate anything. So it had to be the state that would impose themselves, and they didn't. And so, and Sam owned a vast majority of the team, and the local ownership couldn't overrule, wouldn't overrule Sam. So I remember meeting with the late Simon Cordine, the deputy commissioner of the NBA. He came down to visit me, and he went away from it after the meeting with the mayor saying, there's no political will to keep this team. And so I guess, and I, I don't know the intricacies of Sam and Salt Lake City and Larry Miller. I don't know anything of that, but he was able to get the team moved. He asked me to go to Salt Lake, and I said I would prefer to stay in New Orleans. I had built up my life there, and I was I enjoyed myself, and, they, and I was very well known. And so he was able to pretty seamlessly move the team. The city of Salt Lake, to my understanding, picked up the liquidated damage clause against the state of Louisiana, which was a quarter of a million dollars. It seems like chump change today. Today, Then it was probably not your even average rookie salary anymore, but then it was. No, <laughs> then, it was uh, then it was a little bit of more money, but not enough for Salt Lake not to get the franchise. But it was, Sam was happy when he moved. So then he could go see games, I guess. I don't even know if he went to Salt Lake to see games. I don't really know. And uh, but I think it start, It always starts at the top. And Sam never came to New Orleans. I mean, there was, I can count maybe, let's see, I was with the team four and a half years. Five, I can count a half a dozen times when I saw him in New Orleans. He would send minions in, but it was all about Sam and me talking. But it's, it brings back great memories. You're going to have a reunion with these guys yeah. later on this year. Yeah. What are you expecting everybody to bring to that reunion, and how nice is it going to be to see all those guys? Well, to date, I've got 11 ball players committed to coming back. There's a number of ball players who sadly have passed on. All of our coaching staff has passed on. Our announcers have passed on. Our trainer has passed on. Um, so that'll be a sad but uplifting day. And I've got 11 great guys looking forward to coming. So I've told them, I'm not your general manager anymore. <laughs> I want to hear all those stories that you would never tell me or say publicly you're going to tell now. And so I, I said that specifically the taxi cab accident in Phoenix 
where you yep. had where you had five players in the taxi cab, which I don't have to say how they got in there. I want to hear that story. And so they swore they were going to bring all of the stories I never should hear and still never should hear. But it will be a wonderful dinner. I'm excited about it. But it'll be a nice intimate evening. We've got a private room. The woman that owns Commanders used to work for me, actually. Lovely girl. And uh, so I'm excited. I'm excited to have the dinner. And we're going to memorialize it, I'm sure. I'm excited for you. I'm excited that you were in the early stages of this, this franchise because, as I've told you before, I wouldn't be here today if you didn't start this thing. So thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for all that you've done for the Jazz. Well, appreciate those kind words. And those are those memories are seared into my brain, and I I cherish every moment because it was really tough, but I cherish every moment. Thank you very much. Thank you.